Thanks, man. Good morning. Happy summer to you guys. Uh, if you have a Bible, please open it up to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis 16. We're looking at a couple stories this morning. And uh, God asks a huge question um, in our story uh, this morning. It's kind of the climax of the story. Um, it's this overarching question. He asks a question to Sarah about himself. He asks her a question about himself. He asks her this. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? He says, is anything too difficult for me? Is there anything that's too hard for me? And I think just as I read that this, this week, I, I just think, man, this morning, it'd be really good for us just to kind of assess that question in our own lives. Where have we, where have you and I placed limitations on God in our lives? Where, where have we looked at in our situations and in our circumstances, and we've said, this just seems too difficult for God? Like, this is impossible. There's no way that, that this could be transformed. Maybe you're facing some sort of like unmet desires in your life. There's just like a vacancy there. These unmet desires that you have, and, and you're just sort of watching the clock tick on your life, and whatever this unmet desire is, it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and God seems to be getting smaller and smaller and smaller in contrast to that thing. Really, I mean, what, do you, what are you putting, what do you, what, do you, what do you see that God has shackles on, where he's sort of weak in an area? Or maybe you just see him as indifferent towards your life. I suggest to you that when you and I box God in in our lives, when we place limits on what he can do or what he can't do, um, we're not only questioning what he's capable of, we are doubting him, himself. And we're categorically, I think, tending to doubt him in, in one of two ways. And you're probably, all of us in this room, I think, tend to doubt him in one of these two ways. We either doubt his transcendence or we doubt his intimacy. We tend to doubt God's transcendence or his intimacy. We either think God is, is way too transcendent, he, he's, he's so powerful, he's so beyond me that there's no way that he could care about me. There, there's no way that he would be this involved in my life or he would be this concerned about me or, or why would God care about me? Or um, maybe that's not the problem. We, we believe God's really relatable. We believe he's really intimate with us. He's very approachable. We're kind of buddy-buddy with God. And so uh, we don't doubt that he cares for us. We sort of just doubt his power. We don't doubt that his shoulder is there to cry on. We doubt whether his arm is strong enough to do anything. And so I think when we approach God, this is kind of what's going on in our lives when we get to these places of questioning if something's too difficult for him. To put it to you this way, if you were in need of money, let's just say a lot of money, okay, like $250,000 kind of money, okay, I don't know what you did, you're in trouble for something, okay, and I just was your friend and I went to you and I said, oh, don't worry about it, it's very possible to get that kind of money overnight. You just need uh, Jeff Bezos, who's the founder of Amazon, who's now the richest person on the planet, worth $112 billion, you just need him. I mean, he's got the money, you can just get the money from him overnight, Right? Like he obviously has the ability to fix your situation. You would go, yes, uh, no, I, I, that, that, I doubt that. Right? I mean, that would still seem like an impossible situation to you, but what you're not doing is you're not doubting whether or not he can provide this kind of money for you. You know he has the money for it. What you're doubting is whether or not Jeff is, is near enough to you, whether he actually cares about you enough to give you that money. On the contrary, if I said to you, oh, don't worry about that. I mean, I, it's, it's very possible to get the kind of money overnight. You, you've got me as your friend, right? I'll figure it out. 
right? I mean, you are going to look at me and have a real sense of like, that is impossible, right? You're going to think that's impossible. Why? Well, you're not doubting my nearness to you. You're not doubting my care for you. You're not even doubting my generosity. You're just doubting my ability. You're doubting my power, right? I think when it comes to God, this is, this is how we doubt God and how we sit in this question, is anything too difficult for the Lord? We're doubting one of these two things. We doubt his nearness and we doubt his power. And this morning, guys, we have these two stories. And in one, we see the nearness of God. In one, we see the incredible transcendence of God put on display in this amazing promise of this miraculous birth. And it leads us to hang on that question in the climax of this story, is anything too difficult for God? And so the first story, I want us to see that when you and I embrace the impossible, we just embrace the impossible, uh, we make a mess. We make a mess. But secondly, we see in the second story that when we embrace the God of the impossible, wonder is actually birthed in our lives. We have this wonder that's birthed in our lives. So the first story is chapter 16 of Genesis. We see this, when we embrace the impossible, a mess is made. Read with me in in chapter 16. I'll read the whole thing. It says, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are a pregnant, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Berhalaroi, it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. That's pretty old. All right. So we see here, uh, we saw two weeks ago in chapter 15, the, and we saw in chapter 12 as well that God has promised Abraham and Sarah children. And God even made a covenant in chapter 15 saying, if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, may I die. We saw that a couple weeks ago. 
But then chapter 16 begins, and we immediately have this tension again. We have these, this tension of unmet desires, because the first line of the chapter says, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Tension's back. And Abraham and Sarah hear the promise of children. That's what's happening. They hear this promise for a very long time, and yet they see no fulfillment of that promise. They have this opportunity before them that they could wait and they decide that waiting just must not be in God's plans because looky here, right? Look at our story. We have a servant girl, Hagar, right? And a, and a female Egyptian servant. And, and Sarah thinks, let's just introduce another person into our marriage. This is a great idea, you know? And she convinces Abraham to take Hagar as a second wife, and, and he gets her pregnant so this whole thing hopefully can just stop. This whole waiting thing can stop, and Abraham can get on with his life, you know, experiencing the promise that God has given to him that he's going to have all these offspring. Let's just get on with it, right? Well, I think it's really important to see and realize here, guys, that, um, one, we're reading a narrative, Okay? So this isn't God commanding. He doesn't say, hey, uh, go impregnate Hagar. That's my plan. He doesn't say that. So no, what's happening is Abraham and Sarah, they're looking to their own culture. They're looking around at their own culture and seeing what was acceptable in that culture. And they're saying by their actions, they're saying God is taking too long. And it's culturally appropriate to have more than one wife and to make babies this way. And so I'm certain that God's probably just cool with this, you know? And God's not cool with it, actually. Um, God has never been cool with polygamy. And in fact, whenever you see people in the Bible practice it, it just never goes well, quite honestly. Um, but why in the world, why in the world would Sarah try and convince Abram to do this? Why would she do that? Well, well you must understand that Sarah wants to have kids, right? She's barren. She's very old in age now, but it's not just that Sarah grew up wishing that she could, as a little girl, wishing that she could be a mom of kids someday. I'm sure that might have been part of it. That's not the point, though, of why she's so motivated to do this, because the motivation, though, is coming more from this idea that Sarah's culture said that what made you a full woman, what made you a whole person, what gave you worth as a woman in this culture was being a mom. That was it. It was, was giving birth to kids, having children, and she didn't have any. And so therefore, she was seen more as a drain on society than a contribution to it. So she's desperately um, being motivated to, to, to move in a direction that was contrary to what God would desire and instead commissions Hagar, her servant, to conceive a child for Abraham so she can vicariously kind of live through Hagar. But here's the thing, this conception of Hagar's son, it didn't bring this peace that she was looking for. Because what happens? Your story tells you Hagar gets pregnant, but this doesn't like turn into some warm-hearted uh, surrogate relationship, does it? No, Hagar was in this low position. She was in a powerless position as a servant. And verse 4 tells us that in her powerless position, she looks to her pregnancy to become her power. So she looks to her pregnancy and she says, here, I'm something now. And so she gets puffed up. It's as if she's saying, look at me. Even though I am treated as an inferior wife to Abraham, I'm a superior childbearer. I, I, I'm a woman. Because of this child in my womb, I matter. 
So you have this jealousy, this backbiting, these power plays that are just being exchanged between Hagar and Sarah, and Abraham's being a terrible leader in his home. Honestly, he's standing by very passively. And, and, and even more so, he allows Sarah to toss Hagar to the curb, into the wilderness. So she's a servant, pregnant woman, all alone, no way to provide for herself in the wilderness, just completely lonely. Guys, this is a mess, right? This is an absolute mess. This girl is abandoned, left to fend for herself. Guys, this whole idea of Sarah and Abraham taking matters into their own hands has just turned into a huge mess. They were facing the impossible. And so they tried to live their lives according to what they thought was possible. Like, well, this is possible, so I'm just going to go that route. And it wasn't a good idea at all. Uh, I think we too often think something's a really good idea, and then one day we see that it's not at all, correct? You guys ever do this? I don't know why this came to me this week. I'll share it with you. But I was uh, putting peanut butter on my toast, and I had a flashback to when I was a kid. And I remember that as a kid, when I made peanut butter toast, which was like every day, I would first put just like gobs of butter on it. I would just put gobs of butter on my bread until you could like see it, didn't absorb in, you could like see it on top, and then I would put the peanut butter on top, okay? And I was buttering my peanut butter toast and I was like, why did I think that was a good idea, right? Like, that's like the most unhealthy thing on the face of the planet, right? But as a kid, you're like, who cares, man? It's butter and peanut butter, this is awesome, okay? So I thought this was delicious and it's disgusting, okay? But I, I look back and I'm like, why did I think that was a good idea? I think comedic, that created a mess. I mean, look at me, right? So nonetheless, this, like in every other situation, even though it's a petty example, replacing God's plan with another, it just leads to a mess. We think we are solving our problems. We even convince ourselves that God is even approving of our decisions somehow because sin is deceptive. And what we do is we, this is what we do when we face the impossible, we just look at what we can perceive and we go ahead with that. We take life into our own hands and we think God is taking too long or he doesn't care for us or he isn't powerful enough to change our circumstances. And so maybe you're here this morning and you've heard God promise you abundant life. You've heard him promise you in his word happiness. You've heard him promise you freedom. And you're waiting and you're living your life in a certain way because you're tired of waiting, and you're even getting encouraged by so-called Christians to embrace ways that truly are sinful under the banner of saying, well, God made a promise to you categorically in this way. So maybe God, you say, God promised me happiness, and you're looking at your own marriage right now. And you're like, this isn't at all what it was cracked up to be, I thought. But, um, I, so I think I'm just gonna leave this relationship and I'm gonna go be with that man or that woman because God promised me happiness. Or God promised me happiness and I'm, I'm still single and I really don't wanna be single. And so I'm just gonna do whatever I want with whoever I want as often as I want because it's about my happiness, right? I mean, Jesus wants me to be happy. Or God promised me freedom, so I'm just gonna live however I want because I'm saved by grace, right? We were just singing about that. Freedom, right? Or God said that I was going to change. He said I was going to change. And this area of my life that I constantly struggle with isn't changing. So he must be powerless to do so, or I must have misunderstood him or something. And so I'm just going to embrace this as who I am. I'm just going to embrace my sin, right? Guys, we need a category for waiting. 
And, and that's a category that's really not natural for people like us living in 2018. Like, we don't have to wait for anything at all. And it's often in our lack of waiting and our trying to settle just for what we think is possible and immediate that we, that we make a mess. Maybe this morning you're sitting here and you're like, I just feel more like Hagar than I do like Abraham and Sarah. Maybe you're a result of that mess. Maybe you're someone, because of someone else's sin, you were like tossed into the, the wilderness. You've been the one who was hurt. I mean, Hagar's the oppressed one in this story, right? She, she just has to go along with everything. She doesn't have a voice. And look at where that's gotten her. In the wilderness, all alone, pregnant. Maybe you carry shame this morning. Or you feel blame for something that you really didn't do. Or maybe you've been burned and wounded by some sort of impatient and senseless act of, a, of other, other, another person. And maybe that's left you not to doubt the transcendence of God but maybe that's caused you to doubt the nearness of God, going, does God even see me? Does God even care for me? Well, do you notice what God does next in our story? What does he do next? He pursues Hagar when she's alone. And what does he do? He lifts her shame. God draws near to her. He is near to the brokenhearted. We see that here in this story. We see that throughout the rest of the Bible. He's near to the hurt. He's near to the wounded. And he promises that he's going to protect her. And he's going to preserve her. He's going to bless Ishmael and his descendants. But the way he's going to provide for her is a little bit countercultural because he's going to do so by sending her back into the conflict. He tells her to go back and submit to Sarah. And we know that Hagar does this. So how in the world is she able to do this, to go back into a terrible situation? Well, she gives you a clue in verse 13. She says, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. I have seen him who looks after me. He sees me. He cares for me. The impossible has happened. Has happened. Her shame has been lifted, but more than that, she is grounded in the realization that God sees her and God looks after her. His eye hasn't wandered from her. As J.I. Packer puts it, you are never out of God's mind. He sees you, but he doesn't just see you in some sort of passive way like, I see you over there. No, he says, you look after me. And I think if, if you're a parent or if you remember being a child, like we all have this desire within us to be seen. I mean, just yesterday, we took our kids to the pool, and I feel like the entire time, my daughter was just jump, you know, jumping off into the pool, doing these like cannonball things, and I was sitting there, and she just, every time, Dad, watch me, Dad, watch me, Dad, watch me, as if I, if I didn't watch her, it didn't happen or something. They just want the validation. They want to be seen. They want to know that you're watching them, maybe that you care for them, or you're invested in their life. We all have this innate desire, and here Hagar's in the wilderness thinking no one sees her, and here God shows up. And she comes to the realization God is near. But next we see that God's near to Sarah too, but in a different way, he's going to blow her mind. We see that when we embrace not the impossible, but guys, when we embrace the God of the impossible, wonder is actually born in your heart. Look with me in chapter 17, starting in verse 15. It says, and God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be your name. 
I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which means laughter. She calls his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. So you already promised that. Here he's promising it again to Abraham. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Jump with me to 18 verse 1. It says, and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, referring to Abraham. And he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it, make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, just a reminder, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So what did she do? She laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And God said, no, you did laugh. Um, and that's how the story ends, right? She's just like hanging there. But the reason it does that, it's, be- it's really beautiful narrative, because the reason it does that is because it wants you to realize the point of this whole story is his question to her. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too impossible for God, right? Remember now, 13 years has passed. I jumped a chapter, 13 years has passed. Ishmael's 13 years old. And for all we know, and seemingly for all they know, Ishmael's the guy. He's like the promised son. That's what they're thinking. And they were wrong. They find out in this moment, if they weren't, if it wasn't evident already, that they took matters into their own hands. They didn't wait. But God renamed Sarai to Sarah, because he says in verse 16, she shall become nations, kings of people shall come from her. God's whole plan to bless the world was intended to come from Sarah, Sarah's barren womb, not Hagar's. And Abraham, what does he do in response? He falls on his face, which is a sign of like adoration and reverence and worship, but then what does he do? He laughs, which is where we get the name Isaac from. If you follow the story of Isaac, the rest of Genesis, you see laughter happening all around him. It's this theme this idea of laughter. He falls on his face and he laughs. I'll just be honest with you. I'm not a, I'm not a laugher. 
okay? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not an easy laugh, okay? But I love, I'm like jealous of people who laugh easy. So that's why I love hanging out with like Trent Thompson, Julia Campbell, people who just like easily laugh. I'm like really jealous, honestly. Um, I, I, if, you, if I laugh, you know that you got me like really well, okay? Um, if, I'm, if something's funny and I just smile at it, know that I'm laughing inside, okay? This is how I function, okay? Um, but we know, guys, we know. Laughter, for many people, except for myself and some others, laughter is a very natural response to something we think is funny, okay? But guys, Abraham doesn't just think this is funny. That's not why he's laughing. It's also a very natural response that we have when we think something is too wonderful, when something is unbelievable, when something seems ridiculous, we're like, no way. That might move us to laughter. This is what's happening here with Abraham. God says to Abraham, I'm not establishing my covenant with Ishmael. Abraham's like, come on, please. And he's like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm sticking to my promise. It's going to be with you and Sarah, not you and Hagar. I'm making it with Isaac. Guys, the point is very clear in this story. God is pushing the circumstances of their lives to the very brink. He's pushing the promise that he's made to them into a territory where when it comes to pass, there will be no question that only God could do this. Only God could do this. So what's Abraham's response? I didn't read it. His response is he obeys what God required of him that Taylor talked about last week, and he goes and circumcises himself and everybody in his household. And then chapter 18 begins with this detailed narrative of hospitality. For the first eight verses, it's this narrative of hospitality. These strangers come by his tent. And in this day and age, it was very wise of you when a stranger would come by your tent to be hospitable to them, just in case that person was an enemy so that you could make them a friend. And this is what's interesting. Abraham really undersells the whole thing. He's like, can I get you some water and and maybe a morsel of bread. And then he goes inside to Sarah, and he's like, I want you to go to market a choice. I want you to get like the finest of all meats, buy the name brand stuff, only the best, right? Be extravagant, go all out, you know, get LaCroix, not the bubbly knockoff brands, like get the nice stuff, right? He brings it all out, and he just showers these guys with generous hospitality, okay? They share this meal in the tent, which is a sign of fellowship, a sign of communion. But these guys aren't just any old guys, These guys are representatives of God. They speak on behalf of God. In fact, it says in verse 10, when they talk, it just says, the Lord says. It's as if God is there. What do they make, what do they say? Well, they make this huge annunciation. They make this promise again to Abraham of a miraculous birth, and they know that Sarah can hear them. Well, what happens? Sarah laughs. But not out loud like Abraham, she laughs to herself, and God knows this. And why does Sarah laugh, though? Not only because it was too unbelievable for her like Abraham, but Sarah's laugh here is rebuked by God. Why? Well, Sarah isn't laughing out of joy. Sarah's laughing out of cynicism. She's laughing out of cynicism. God pushed the impossibilities to the brink. Just think about it. She's, she's wanted to have children her whole life. This is what makes you something, right? In the eyes of the world, it makes you a full woman. In her whole life, she's been waiting. She's like way too old now. She's gone through menopause. She can't even be intimate with Abraham is what she states here. She's the age of a great-grandmother, and she's not even a mother. And she's going, now? Now? God comes along and says we're going to have a child? Now? 
After all these years, I mean, she's towards the end of her life. She's going to give birth to this boy and probably not live long after that. So she laughs. Let's talk about anti-climax, right? I mean, we're all living these lives. We're all living these stories. And we all experience conflict. We all experience tension. And we're all looking to something that's going to be the climax of our life. We go, if I have that, that's the climax of my story. Everything's going to be solved. Everything's going to be better. I have this conflict and tension leading up to it. And for her, her whole life is if I can have a baby, that's the climax. Her whole point for her life has been anticlimax, anticlimax after anticlimax after anticlimax. She stopped seeing the world the way that we would say maybe a child sees the world. You lose the wonder, right? Wonder that all of us had at one point when we were kids where all of life is a miracle, where there, there's no such thing as something that's impossible. Everything is possible. We lose our wonder. We lose our hope of the impossible. Cynicism sets in. We call it, I'm just being re- real, but it's cynicism. It's where our heart sort of hardens and, and calcifies over time after we experience the anticlimax after the anticlimax. G.K. Chesterton said that children enjoy life more than anybody because of their wonder they have towards it. He says, kids aren't cynical about the world, they wonder at it. They just wonder at it. And this is a quote, he says, what was wonderful about childhood is that anything in it was a wonder. It was not merely a world full of miracles, it was a miraculous world. We all remember that as being kids, right? When you were a kid, you thought you could be a firefighter and the president of the United States and a professional athlete, right, and a war hero, right, all at the same time. If you're a girl, maybe you have different dreams. I don't know, this is maybe mine, okay? But nonetheless, you, you think that, and you ask kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they list you like three things, and you're like, that's adorable, you know? But y'all, we're all like, at some point, we all go, that's not possible. But as a kid, you're like, why is that impossible? I could do that. Children, they have these hopes. Nothing is impossible, There's a wonder about them, but Sarah embraces the impossible. She laughs, and God pushes back. God rebukes her. He even takes her response, if you see that, and in his response, he reveals her doubts. He reinterprets her statements. He reveals that she has boxed him in, that she has put limits on God, that she has looked at her situation, and she thinks, I know how life works, and she embraces the impossibility. She doesn't embrace the God of the impossibility which is the same God that revealed himself that Taylor talked about last week to Abraham. He gave Abraham a a new name for himself as God. He revealed himself by a new name in the beginning of chapter 17. He said, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. I am the God of the impossible. That's how he reveals himself. And so guys, for us, when, when there seems that there's no way that his promise will come true, what does he give you? He gives you his name. He says, this is who I am. What are you talking about? You see, Sarah laughs not because she is doubting the presence of God. She knows God is there. Again, the first eight verses are showing you this fellowship, this intimacy with God. God is near. Sarah's not doubting that. She expects her, though, and he expects us to believe that nothing is too much for him. She doubts his transcendence. She thinks this is too wonderful for him. She thinks this is too hard for God but he is El Shaddai. He is God Almighty, but he's also the God who sees and who takes care of her. So I ask you this morning, what are you facing that seems impossible right now? 
is the impossibility, maybe, of being forgiven for something that you've done to somebody else. It just feels impossible. The impossibility of even forgiving someone else who's really hurt you and done something terrible to you. That seems impossible. Maybe it's the impossibility of ever changing, and you're so frustrated that you're stuck in these cycles of sin that you just can't rid yourself of. Or maybe it's the impossibility of making it through the next year, the next month, or maybe it's just even tomorrow. Or maybe it's the impossibility of doing what you know God's calling you to do because you're too afraid of what it might cost you, of what you might lose or how you might fail. I mean, what are you, what are you facing? Can I, can I tell you something? Our greatest impossibility this morning may not be what you think it is. There is one thing that is way more impossible when you think about it. And I think if you really sat down and you pondered it, like, like it would hit you in a, in a very pressing sort of way. Maybe it doesn't feel pressing right now, but, but it's the most pressing impossibility that you and I ever face. And God has answered that possibility, impossibility. The God of the impossible has made it possible. Because guys, this story actually is foreshadowing a completely different story. It's really beautiful. Because many years later, God is going to send a messenger again who's going to represent him and speak to another woman. Another woman in Luke chapter 1. You read that there's this virgin whose name is Mary, and this representative of God shows up and says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, which Jacob is the son of Isaac. In his kingdom, there will be no end. And how does Mary respond? Does she laugh? That's ridiculous. She says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. He will be the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age, just like Sarah, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And this is what the angel said next to her. He says, for nothing will be impossible with God. That's what he tells Mary. And Mary laughs. No. She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. She goes, well, that doesn't seem possible, but he's the God of the impossible. Let it be done to me. Friends, this story here in Genesis is pointing you to the greatest impossibility of how God would overcome your greatest impossibility that you ever face in life your enslavement, the poverty of your spirit, your sin. There is no circumstance that we face this morning that rivals the difficulty of you and I ever changing our own hearts, ever conquering our own, our own sin, ever clawing our own way to God. But this story of the miraculous birth of Isaac is not only a story that increases Abraham and Sarah's faith, not only is the story going to prove that this indeed had to be a God thing because it was pushed to the brink of tremendous circumstances, but there would be no more explanation for it. But this story was the prelude to the ultimate impossibility God himself becoming a man. 
through a virgin. And Mary would have that boy Jesus. But he wouldn't marry anybody, actually. He wouldn't experience pleasure that Sarah talks about in chapter 18. He wouldn't produce another seed from his life, another offspring, because he was going to be the seed that was promised from the lineage of Abraham, and he was going to crush the head of the serpent, and he was going to turn every anti-climax of your life into the greatest climax. He took what seemed impossible, and in the cross and resurrection, he made it completely and utterly possible for all time. God has pursued us. He has drawn near to us in Jesus, and he draws near to you this morning, guys, and he lifts your shame like he does to Hagar in the wilderness. He draws near this morning not only to lift your shame like he does to Hagar, but he lifts your eyes off of your unmet desires this morning, off of your frustrating circumstances, and he places your eyes onto his power, and he invites you to embrace him the God of the impossible, and to let go of embracing what you perceive as impossible. If you do this, guys, I'll tell you one thing that'll happen. Wonder will start to be birthed in your life again, just like a child. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Literally, the Hebrew word hard means wonderful. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Let me ask you, Just consider this, what if, what if the most barren seasons of your life are the most pregnant? Like, what if the most barren seasons of your life are actually the most pregnant? Or actually the greatest moments to see the impossible happen? This is exactly what you see in Jesus. Do you remember how he he went out to his disciples at a lake, and the lake was barren with fish? And they were working all day. He says, throw the net over again. And they pulled up so many fish that the nets began to break. He took the barrenness that people felt in their illnesses, like leprosy and blindness and deafness and being crippled, things that could never be fixed, things that seemed completely impossible to ever being changed. And he just spoke. He would touch them. He would say things and people would be healed. He took the barrenness of a tomb that Lazarus was in where people are weeping all around, and he just called him out of the grave. He took disciples who were terrified for their lives in a boat in the midst of a storm, and he just stood up and he speaks, and the waves and the wind actually obey him. He sits there before a crowd of thousands of people, looking out and seeing how everyone's hungry, and there's just this barrenness. There's only a couple of loaves and a few fish, and what does he do in the moment of what seemed to be impossible? He feeds them all until they were completely full and satisfied. And he took the, the hopelessness that his followers felt on Good Friday and the extreme hopelessness that they felt on that Saturday when nothing even happened. And they started going back to their lives. And he walked out of the grave on Sunday. Guys, what if the most barren seasons of life are the most pregnant when you're walking with Jesus? What if these are moments for for change? What if there's transformation tomorrow that you just can't see today? How does this happen? How could this be your life and your story? How do we see the world this way? Guys, it only happens when you embrace the God of the impossible and not embrace the impossible. If all you're focusing on is your circumstances and not the God who's over your circumstances, 
Messes will be made. Waiting will seem impossible. But when you embrace the God of the impossible, lives are changed. Guys, if God could do anything, I mean literally anything, and he sees you this morning, and he looks after you, he's near to you, but he's powerful enough and he's transcendent enough, and you know that he's embracing you, embrace him. Don't embrace your barrenness. Embrace the one who embraces you in Jesus this morning. Father, that's my hope for us. God, that we would truly be people, even when it's so painful and so hard. God, I know we're talking about situations that just really hurt. God, struggles that are very real. God, I just pray this morning for people who are in the midst of just intense struggle, just frustrated with the circumstances before them, maybe questioning if you're even seeing them right now. God, I pray that you'd show them this morning how you not only see them, you care for them. And you're not only just present, God, you're, you're powerful enough. You are El Shaddai, you're Almighty God. You can do anything. So God, I pray you would instill within us, just infuse in us just a spirit of trust in you, that you lift our eyes off of our circumstances and just may they wrap around you, God. God, that you'd birth wonder in our lives today as we consider you. Would wonder just be birthed in our lives, God? Would we have hope once again? God, knowing that whatever it is you're saying to me this morning, whether that's a no, a maybe, a yes, whatever it is, God, we know that you're good. We know that you're with us. We know that you're powerful. We thank you for that. In Christ's name I pray, amen.